Hey, welcome to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Today on the show, the city of Langford is doing something innovative about making housing more affordable for first-time home buyers. They're helping by contributing up to 75% of that initial 5% down payment. Their mayor joined us on the show. Also on the program, the city of Vancouver requires that its employees are fully vaccinated by December 6th. Well, Toronto City staff have just passed their deadline to do the same. How's it going? We checked in with Global News Radio Dave Bradley at Radio 640 for the lowdown. And it's Halloween, so Mark Freeby from Vancouver's Horror Nights was on about what his theatre is doing to scare people. And it may or may not involve ghosts. And Coquitlam Search and Rescue was on the show with good advice for hikers in the wake of some popular bad advice that's been circulating recently on social media. All that and so much more on the podcast. Let's dive in. High housing prices are making it, as we're all way too, way too aware of, uh, making it impossible for young people to buy a home in BC. But if you live on the island, the city of Langford has other enticing options. They are offering down payment help to first-time homebuyers. Here to talk about that decision is Stuart Young, the mayor of Langford. Good morning, Mayor Young. Good morning. Great of you to join us this Halloween. I know you're going to have a busy day and evening ahead oh, yeah. of you. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure that Google searches for Langford plus home have gone up this week. First off, let's mm-hmm. get a picture of housing there. What's the housing crisis looking like in Langford? Well, it's like everywhere across Canada. It's gone up about probably 25% in the last two years. And, uh, you know, nobody can afford to buy a single-family home anymore in our town. You know, it's about $900,000 for a, a new house, you know, a three-bedroom, which you could have bought, you know, two, three years ago for, you know, six, six fifty. So it's it's a it's a crisis now. Like I mean, we've been talking about housing crisis for you know the last few years, five six years, and and it's absolutely at its peak right now. I think you know I don't think it can go much higher, but uh, it's just unaffordable. You know, a young family uh, trying to buy a single family home it's just out of their reach. So we're trying to uh, get into the condo and the uh, townhouse market and make a bit of a difference where we can get families at least to buy into the market and put their money towards, you know, equity in a, in a home in Langford. And yeah. that's what our program does. Yeah. The program's called Attainable Home Ownership. Can you tell mm-hmm. us how this new program would work for interested buyers? So if you're making less than 125000 combined, um, you can apply online at the City of Langford and if you're, say, making $80,000, let's say, there's a sliding scale. So the less money you make, the more the down payment. So we'll give three quarters of a down payment uh, for somebody that's making 80000 a year. And as you go to somebody making 100000 a year or a, or a home income is 100000 a year, uh, then, you know, uh, the more money you make, then you go down to like 50% of your home uh, or your down payment would be paid for by the city of Langford. Yeah, Mayor Young, these are precisely the people who are thinking, you know, you're targeting the people who have thought, I have no chance of ever getting into the market. So what has interest been like? What are you hearing from people? Well, in the first uh, two days, we had over 
250 people apply. Oh, wow. And uh, by the end of uh, Friday, we had 450. So, and it just keeps growing every day by 100 people so far. So, you know, we know the need is there. Um, We research this a lot, our staff. I talk to people all throughout Langford. Um, We've got a lot of rentals. Like, we're we're adding 3,000 rentals every, you know, couple of years. And what's happening is, is people can get into a rental and pay seventeen hundred to twenty two hundred dollars for a one bedroom to a two bedroom, um, but they don't have that down payment. So when we talk to people, what's your reason why you can't get into it? Well, we just can't save the money. We're paying so much in rent, mm. and that. So we we tried to f- formulate this to make sure that um, if you're renting for two thousand dollars, we can almost you know help you with your down payment. Mm-hmm. and get you into something you own that uh, would be the same price almost as what you're paying for the rents now. Mm-hmm. And that's what's happening. So we're we're finding that a lot of the renters want to be into home ownership. They just can't get it. And especially when you're a young family, and you're raising kids and, you know, you're probably, you know, 25, 30 years old, uh, two good paying jobs, but you just can't get the down payment down on it. And that's what the focus of this is, is just to make it attainable. And, you know, it, it, it's it's going to work. It's because it makes sense. You know what I mean? Like if you've got the help on the down payment, then you're not into that renting cycle. And so it should work uh, uh, really well. We've got a lot of interest, as I said, over 450 people uh, just uh, applying online at the city of Langford. So um, it'll be oversubscribed, obviously, but uh, it's a start anyway in the right direction. And, and it just shows the need. Yeah, the need seems people. to be there. The need is there. We just need to find a way as politicians to get people into, you know, home ownership and making sure that, you know, they uh, get into a market and that uh, is is just getting ex- more expensive every year. So we, we had to try to do something and hopefully this will work really well. Yeah. And how is Langford mm-hmm. able to afford giving home buyers that, that almost 5% down payment? Well, what happens when the developers are building in Langford, we take a percentage, like $1,000 a unit, let's say. So if we build 3,000 units uh, in Langford and, um, you know, we, we use that money that from that and that builds our fund. We've got over $3 million in the fund right now uh, just from developer contributions. So this is not the city's tax money. What it is is as you develop, we, they give us an attainable housing, affordable housing fund, and the money goes into that, and then we just grow it every year. Well, every month it grows. Mm-hmm. You know, so, if, um, so it's a kind of a revolving, you know, it'll it'll always have money funding into it, and then we take that money and leverage it and make sure that, uh, um, you know, they can use that as their uh, down payment. So yeah. it's, it's the first time we've, we've done this, but we've done other things, you know, where we've made the developer pay. But as the housing prices go so high, a developer can't give us a house anymore. <laughs> you uh. know what I mean? We used, we used to uh, do actual single-family homes. We used to, you know, back in the day, like we've been doing this for 20, 25 years, and we would have a house uh, built, 10% of the housing in the uh, rezoning would have to be affordable housing, and they would have to build it at their price. Well, that was okay when we were building houses for 170,000, 200,000. Right. And and but now with the housing at 900,000, we can't help as many people. 
Right. So we thought, let's transition into helping the down payment because that's what we talked to people about. And they said, I just need the down payment, you know, mm-hmm. and then I can just go get myself, you know, something and, and I could have home ownership in Langford. And uh, we found that uh, almost everybody we talked to, um, they said, well, if I knew I could get a down payment, I'll save even a bit more money knowing that the hope is there to do it. So it gives them hope and gives people the chance to actually buy into the market. And, uh, you know, it's always great to have a community, you know, of homeowners. You know what I mean? Like the more home ownership you can get, the stronger your community is. And Langford prides itself on home ownership. 70% of the people in Langford own their homes oh. uh, five years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, now we're down to about 64%. Do you expect that's going to increase then with this program? Yes, it should. And we'd like to keep it at between 70% home ownership, 30% rental, just for the health of the community. And that means people are actually buying into your community. They're investing in our community and they're going to stay in our community. If you buy. And that's partly what we need to do is to make sure that, you know, home ownership is attainable and whatever we can do as politicians to make that happen. So it's, it's important to recognize what our goals are and where we're at, but um, we want to get back to 70% home ownership, like other municipalities, like city of Victoria, it's the other way. It's like 30% home ownership, 70% rental, but we want people to be invested in our community with young families. And if they get in the market early, then they're always more successful down the road. They own something and they take ownership and pride of that as well. Right, Mayor Young, there are some complaints though. What have you been hearing from critics? Uh, not really sure. I just hear the odd <laughs> thing. Nothing, nothing tangible like that I'm worried about and it won't change our program, not with the uptick there. I mean, What about residents' concerns around overbuilding? Overbuilding... Yeah, developing too much in the in the hopes of providing housing that will go to first time home buyers because of the program. Oh, that's hey. The more people we can get in and and use our funds uh, for home ownership, uh, the better it is for our community. Mm-hmm. I want to ask so, uh, squeeze one more question in before we have to go sure. here. Do you think yeah. the federal government needs to do more to help with the housing crisis? Absolutely. That's we wouldn't have to be doing this if the federal government came up with a housing program, a national housing program, mm-hmm. because this is happening in every municipality. The people are priced out of the market for for owning home ownership, and that's where our biggest problem is. And we got to come up with programs for that. We can do this a uh, bit at our level, at the municipal level, and as long as the development pays its way, and we're not using tax dollars to do that. Um, you know, it makes sense. And and we need to come up with some innovative ideas just to get people into home ownership. And this is part of our program is part of that. I mean, there's lots of lots of people can maybe criticize different things here and there. But if the end goal is to get people in Langford, get people in their first home, family, yeah. get in their first home, and then basically they're in the market and they usually stay in the market. Mayor Young, so thank you. I've, I've got a running up against the clock here, so i got to let you go. But sure. thank you so much for okay. the conversation. All righty. Take okay, care. Bye. bye now. 
Good morning. As of yesterday, all City of Toronto staff must be vaccinated. That's fully vaccinated. Here in Vancouver, that date is set for December 6th. How are they doing with vaccine requirements over there? Joining us is Dave Bradley, the morning news anchor with our sister station in Toronto, Global News Radio 640. Hello, Dave, and welcome to the show. Thanks very much. It's great to speak with you, and I know that I don't have to worry that you're not going to be awake because you're over there on Toronto time. <laughs> so, I, I've got two young kids, so uh, I'm up early anyway. And, of course, working mornings, I'm always up early, so it's okay. There you go. What are the kids going to be for Halloween? Um, we've got one dressed up as Belle from Beauty and the Beast, and the other one is going as the ghost face from Scream. So oh. it's going to be a fun, fun Halloween for sure. Okay. And so how are Torontonians faring with COVID-19? Actually, not too badly. Um, and, and more importantly, when you look at the city of Toronto and their vaccination mandate deadline that has come and gone, um, actually, the, the number of city workers who have disclosed their vaccination status and, and have actually received the vaccine is, is much higher than the city average. So about 98 percent of them have already said, yeah, I've got my shots and uh, and I should be OK moving forward. So um, the biggest issue there is that the city has sort of set a, a, a pretty severe penalty if you don't uh, get a vaccine. That first you'll be placed on unpaid leave and then uh, essentially fired, terminated with cause. Mm-hmm. So you're ineligible for any sort of uh, EI or benefits, the severance packages or anything like that. Mm-hmm. How much do we know about whether that was the motivator for, for some people to get vaccinated? It seemed to be. I mean, once we got vaccine mandates put in place, um, and I've been sort of monitoring the number of vaccinations and and sort of the percentage of population, just in the general scope of things, um, of who has been vaccinated, first doses, second doses, etc. And and once we got general vaccine mandates implemented in the province of Ontario, the number of people getting their shots did shoot up. So. Um, we sort of reached a level and plateaued a little bit in the province. Mm-hmm. And then once the province said, OK, you're going to need this to be able to do anything sort of fun, um, then more people, I think, who were sitting on the fence said, OK, well, finally, I, I, I might as well get this done. Uh, as far as city workers, the city came out right away and said, listen, if you don't get your shots, um, essentially, you could be fired if you don't get vaccinated. So um, they said a very sort of harsh penalty right away. And and I think as a result, a lot of city workers just sort of right away went and and got their shots. I mean, 98% is is a pretty significant uptake. So of the nearly 32,000 employees in the city of Toronto, uh, there's about 1,000 now who aren't vaccinated. So um, any disruptions moving forward will be very minimal uh, at this point. Not necessarily the case with all city services because... Mm -hmm. Um, it is sort of a mix and match of, of all the city services. So Toronto Transit Commission, who runs the subways, buses, yeah. uh, wheel trans, um, they're on sort of a, a different mandate. And the vaccine uptake with that group isn't quite as high. So it's about 88 percent okay. at this point. And, and that could result in, uh, in some service disruptions. The TTC is already sort of planning for that and, and warning that, some of the less used routes will see service disruptions and, and buses or subways not coming as frequently. Okay. You mentioned that about a 
thousand people uh, working for the city are still uh, not fully vaccinated. It's not a huge number when you look at the total number of employees there. So, like you said, no expected disruptions there, major disruptions. But the city has said it will accommodate those employees who opt out on human rights grounds, and this is supported by unions. Any idea how many people are seeking exemptions? Not yet. We're going to get an update on those numbers uh, tomorrow. Um, a city spokesperson is expected to to release all of that information uh, as far as religious exemptions, medical exemptions, and, and, and further. But it, it seems like the number of people getting those exemptions is going to be very, very small. In the beginning, I think a lot of people thought, well, I'll just say it's against my religion to get a vaccine and, right. and I'll be able to, to skirt the rules. Um, it's not necessarily the case. Uh, doctors are not giving out medical exemptions very easily at all. And okay. uh, a couple of times that any sort of religious exemption has been leveled and maybe challenged, uh, it seems to go in the way that, you know, ag- against the person trying to get that religious exemption. It really has to be sort of black and white. Um, and if it's a, at all in the gray area, they, they side on the fact that you, you probably should get vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Dave, I'm so curious, what has the mayor of Toronto's uh, messaging been like around vaccine requirements? How clear has it been? Oh, it's been very clear. I mean, he's been out, uh, he was out again yesterday and he, he constantly, constantly uh, challenges people to get their vaccines, pleads with people almost uh, <laughs> okay. at times to, to go out and get vaccinated. And anytime they run new clinics, new angles and ways to uh to to distribute vaccinations and shots and they've been doing it in a variety of different fashions so for the general population not necessarily just for city workers but um they've had smaller clinics in neighborhoods where the uptake hasn't been quite as swift as as other neighborhoods uh they put it in malls they put it in subway stations so if you're on your way to work and you see a, a a vaccine site, you can roll up your sleeve and get your vaccine before you jump on the subway. So Wow, they're um, making it easy been, over there. They really, really are. And, and that was, I think what they saw was the mass vaccination clinics that we had originally. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the number of people getting appointments, making appointments and showing up starting to dry up, right? So they thought, okay, well, we need new ways to reach these people. We've had buses going around the city, mobile vaccination clinics. And uh, they'll just stop in a neighborhood one day and, and open the doors and say, anybody needs a shot, you can come and get it. Wow, that's pretty clear. Well, thank you so much, Dave Bradley, for being with us. No, no problem. It's my pleasure. That was David Bradley, the host of The Morning Show for Global News Radio 640 in Toronto. We were talking about how Toronto is doing with a policy that we're about to institute in the city of Vancouver for mandatory vaccination. <laughs> What is your favorite Halloween music? I love this time of the year. I get dressed up even when I don't have anywhere to go. Of course, this year I'm going to take uh, my two kids out trick-or-treating. Really looking forward to that. Well, it is time to find out what spooky events you can still attend tonight. Mark Freeby is the owner of the Giggle Dam Dinner Theater in Port Coquitlam and of Vancouver Horror Nights. Good morning. Hello, Mark. Good morning. All right, Mark. What is Horror Nights? Uh, well, Vancouver Horror Nights is a uh, haunted attraction inside our actually haunted theater. It features 12 rooms of terror with 25 real live monsters inside, ready to scare you as well. 
as uh, lots of special effects and lots of spooky stuff for the end of the season here. Okay, you're trying to tell me there are really ghosts there? There are. Um, unfortunately, the, the Giggle Dam Dinner Theater is one of Canada's most haunted theaters. I can tell you that it's terrifying coming in in the morning when no one else is here. Uh, there are four resident ghosts. Four? And, uh, yes, and the Vancouver uh, spooks and uh, the paranormal investigation folks have been through our theater many times. They come several times a year with their uh, events. And uh, actually, if you go to our website, VancouverHorrorNights.com, you can listen to recordings that they've made. They call them EVPs, I believe, of uh, the ghosts speaking. And they've uh, done a, a whole investigation. Uh, the theater itself was the... the um, uh, place where a murder took place in 1993, unfortunately. And since that time, it's it's definitely been haunted, and we've all seen some very spooky things not connected to Halloween. Okay, Mark, now I'm properly scared. <laughs> you had to go and do that. <laughs> so what can people expect tonight? So tonight, uh, we're, we're looking at, uh, we're about at 50% capacity, so lots of tickets available. Okay. Um, in, inside, you'll experience the 12 rooms of terror as you go upstairs, downstairs, and in the, all the back-end areas of our theater that the, the public doesn't usually get to see. You'll twist and turn through our maze. You'll also have the opportunity to check out our zombie bar and cafe with some Halloween-inspired treats and uh, drinks with our full bar available outside. Uh, we have a nice uh, heated waiting area, and uh, then we'll get you into the attraction. Uh, it's fun for the whole family. Recommended for 13+, plus, but there are no age restrictions. Oh, okay. So you would uh, allow kids that are younger than 13 to come? We have had seven-year-olds that have gone through and absolutely loved it. And oh, we've also had okay. 45-year-old men run out the back door crying. <laughs> so... I have come to realize that Halloween events like this, they come down to either being creepy or freaky, like frightening. Which one is Horror Nights? So ours is neither of those, actually. Ours is a very theatrical type of um, haunted house. So okay. uh, we, have, we have scripts, and in each area, uh, of course, we're a theater. So in each of our 12 rooms of terror, there's actually uh, a theme to it. And instead of someone just jumping out and going boogity boogity boo, uh, we have uh, a quite, quite a, an interactive experience, I think we would call that. So it, it, it is frightening. We would say it's frightening, but it's, it's uh, you know, we're storytellers. And so that's, that's what we're uh, putting our little theater spin onto the concept of, of a haunted house and, and that kind of attraction. Uh, it sounds like so much fun, but Halloween's not every everyone's cup of tea. I feel like it takes a special sort of person to get into it. What's your favorite part of putting on these spooky events? Uh, well, uh, at the risk of sounding somewhat sadistic, the constant <laughs> and never-ending screams of people just absolutely <laughs> having the best time of their life. Uh, it's, it's kind of ironic to hear the screams coupled with laughter, and uh, that, that is quite fulfilling to us as, as haunters in the haunted community. And for people that are trying to be as safe as they can around COVID-19 stuff, what kind of precautions are you guys taking? So uh, we're obviously uh, taking the uh, checking the vaccine passport. You require two doses and the green passport to uh, attend. 
Uh, we're also um, monitoring for social distancing. We have the opportunity for people to use hand sanitizer as they go through. They receive some safety instructions in case they need to push through or clear the way somewhere in the maze. That's all the hint you're getting. Uh, but we, we definitely are taking COVID-19 very seriously. Uh, masks are required uh, both in our waiting area and inside the attraction. And unfortunately, our actors will not touch you. So nobody, you know, if anybody is looking for a close encounter with a ghost, you won't find that here. Uh, so we're, we're taking many, many precautions just to make sure that we're, we're keeping that little extra distance, but with all the scariness you'd expect in a haunted house. Okay, so you're keeping it really safe. But you did mention maze. I caught that word. It sounds a little scary to me. Claustrophobic, if nothing else. Uh, absolutely. So the, the maze itself, our entire theater is about 6,500 square feet. And when you uh, emerge from the what we call the attic, you are going to go into a twisty, turny maze that winds through the building. And in fact, I've heard, heard many people say that they don't know if they're at the front of the building, the back of the building, am I on the right side or the left side? Of course, our theater has no windows, so you have no orientation. Uh, so the, the maze literally will twist you and turn you, and you'll have no idea where you are. And uh, somewhat of a spoiler, even when you think it's over, it's not. Oh, that sounds like so much fun. And you know what? I've heard that those kinds of spoilers don't really change anything. You'll still end up surprised. You'll still end up scared, probably screaming and laughing. <laughs> it's a guarantee. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Mark Freeby. Before we let you go, will you give us some, a few more details about tonight in terms of where people can purchase tickets and whatnot? For sure. So uh, VancouverHorrorNights.com. Uh, everyone reserves a, um, a line queue time to get in. So you get a 15-minute window to get into your spot, keep things uh, moving uh, safely, and we don't have thousands of people stacked up. So VancouverHorrorNights.com. They can also call our box office at 604 944 4488, and we'll be happy to assist. That's super. Thank you so much, Mark. Have a great day. Happy Halloween. That was Mark Freeby from Giggle Dam Dinner Theater in Port Coquitlam, and he's the owner of Vancouver's Horror Nights. He said the events are safe. They're taking all the COVID-19 precautions. I got to say, these precautions make Halloween a lot less scary if you know that somebody can't uh, jump out from the dark and actually touch you. Also, remember those uh, haunted houses where you had to put your hand into something that looked like eyeballs, those like peeled grapes or uh, those uh, bowls of uh, cooked spaghetti all packed together and, and it was brains. Uh, I can do without all of that stuff. How about you? Let me know, Raji at cknw.com. Someone uh, wrote me that apparently Albert Einstein used to play violin for kids when they came trick-or-treating, which I thought was pretty incredible. I would take that but others might think that it'd be uh, only slightly worse than getting a box of raisins or a toothbrush. Did you ever get a toothbrush as a kid? We had a dentist in my neighborhood as as a child and that dentist would give out a toothpaste and a toothbrush to try to get rid of the cavities that you get just after Halloween. <laughs> 
Search and rescue crews have been educating people about a viral social media post that you've maybe seen already. It's spreading a dangerous survival tip. Really, it's bad advice about what to do if you find yourself lost while hiking. The post says to use your cell phone effectively to call your voicemail services and record a new voicemail greeting that says what your coordinates are so that people can locate and rescue you. What should you do instead? Search and Rescue says call 911. Michael Coyle joins us on the line now. He is the group manager for the Coquitlam Search and Rescue. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Raji. So why is a social media post like this uh, advising lost hikers to change their voicemail? Why is it so troubling? Well, there's three, there's just two main things. If a lot of people we rescue, they're near the end of the day and they've, they've tried their best to get out. And during that time, their voice, their, their phone has lost a lot of the battery. So if they waste more battery trying to change their voicemail instead of calling 911, it may be the last call they make. Mm. Um, the other thing is in marginal conditions, where you have no network, you could have to try to make multiple calls. And the the viral post seems to indicate that you can do this without a network, and that's not true. You can't change your voicemail unless you're connected to Wi-Fi or a cellular signal. Right. So you're effectively just wasting battery if you are trying to change your voicemail. Yeah, and and finally, the the other thing is, um, even if you have great level of battery and, and you have great signal, you leaving a message on a voicemail isn't going to alert someone to come and get you. You're going to have to wait for someone to call your voicemail to find to you know to notice you're missing, and that can take extra hours. And those first hours, especially in BC, are are vital because this is a this is a tough terrain we deal with, and 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 people can get in a lot of trouble in those first hours. And we find things work a lot better if we're called a little earlier. Um, it, so in all cases. We recommend that uh, you leave a you leave a, a a trip plan with a trusted contact mm. and a deadline for when you should be home. Right. And if you don't check in with them, that person should call, and that 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 alerts us must much sooner in the process. Okay, so someone should do that, set out the plan, and share the plan before they even go out on the hike. Yeah, and um, a few years ago, our team, uh, I don't know if people recall, we, we, we spent three days searching for a dog walker in Coquitlam, and, um, and she's, uh, that's Annette, and she, she, she still goes and tells all her friends, even when you're going for a walk with your dog, because she got into so much trouble, it took us three days wow. to find her. Uh, yeah, just for a walk with her dog. Luckily, her husband, of course, noticed she was missing, alerted us very early, and we could we found her car, so we had a general idea of where she'd started. But those things can be missing if you unless you leave a trip plan. Right. Do you think people are relying too much on technologies in these scenarios? So they go out and they don't have a plan, and they assume everything's going to be easy peasy, and then they just think, "Oh, I'll use my cell phone." Is that what's happening? I think so. Yeah. Like, I mean, I'm old enough. I remember when there weren't cell phones and you had to make a plan with someone and then you have to kind of show up at a given time. Now we're so used to just letting the plan be free form and, and changing things last minute and the communication network being there that we rely on. And I think it's just a quick change of, of mindset that you're going into the bush. Your communication network is not going to be reliable 
even in even in Vancouver, when you're very close to 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 the to to the city, um, there's lots of places where there are dead zones and you lose signal. And then the phone um, the phone has to work harder sometimes when it's further away, so it loses the battery faster. Yeah, you mentioned something important there, Michael. I have found myself just going for easy hikes in Vancouver. Uh, I've found myself in pockets of dead zones, and I didn't yeah. even know that I could anticipate that. I have also done what you mentioned, which is uh, making a plan to meet someone and thinking, oh, I can just text them if my plan changes, and you're on the hike, and you find yourself in one of those dead zones, and you can't actually reach them. So those are all very good points. You know, we hear calls are up for search and rescue teams in BC. Do we know what's happening? It's really hard to know for sure, but I think what happened is in the beginning of the pandemic, when a lot of things were closed down, people took up outdoor activities because Vancouver is such a beautiful place, and people suddenly had a lot more time to to, to spend in the outdoors, and it was a very safe thing to do. Still is, um, and they've developed new habits. You know, they've taken to this. They've, they've taken to this. This kind of, I don't want to call it a sport, but like, you know, this this athletic pastime of hiking and, and the incredible views. I see it on all the forums. I see a lot of beginners and they're doing the right things. They're asking other people, what are the conditions here? What trail should I do? So a lot, a lot of things about social media are quite good because people can ask the right questions and often they get good advice. It's just every once in a while, it's hard to tell the good advice from the misinformation. Sure. So what types of calls are you getting these days? It's it's the, it's kind of the standard the standard kind of calls, you know. It's um, especially this time of year. It's really common for someone to run into trouble with a, a little bit of snow, making their travel slower, and then uh, it gets dark and they lose the trail because maybe they forgot a flashlight. And this is like one of the maxims in search and rescue: is every hiker is like two small mistakes and one piece of bad luck away from needing to call for help. And the, the two mistakes, the, the, the sorry, the, the mistake can be not allowing for slow travel on snow because especially people who've done the hike in the summer, now there's snow and ice on some of these trails that's going to slow people down. Yeah, you mentioned flashlight there. I wonder if uh, some of the younger hikers maybe think, oh, flashlight, yeah, I've got that. It's on my cell phone. Yeah, it would be great if the cell phone battery lasted like, you know, at least 10 times as long because then that would work. But yeah, the, the flashlight is such a simple and very light thing and it should be with you all the time. And and speaking as an experienced SAR person, I have forgotten my flashlight and I've got into, I've got into trouble. <laughs> so I know I know what it's like. Mm-hmm. So given that, and you're a pro at hiking, I'm guessing. So So given that, what kind of tips do you have for hikers to prevent getting lost? Well, to prevent getting lost, the trip plan is the most important and paying attention to the elevation change in a trail because that's much more important than the distance. Sure. And the second thing is to really pay attention to the weather. And this time of year, it's all about snow line. And traveling in snow, is, is, it adds hazard because it's slippery and it's colder at higher elevations and it makes the, the travel slower. Yeah, that in combination with the shorter days, a lot to uh, think about before you hit those trails. Thank you so much for being with us on the show today, Michael Coyle. Not a problem, and uh, be safe out there. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
and you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.